Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by guest Dan Kupril, who's the creator of Advisor Architect. Dan, welcome to the show. Jonathan, thanks. I really appreciate you having me on today. Really my pleasure. Could we start off with you giving a sort of background uh, for my audience? Because it's sure. probably unlikely that they've come across your name before because of yeah. your different industry. Yeah. You know, there is a podcast or two out there, but uh, I am by trade a financial advisor. I was one, well, I have been one for about 30 years. And as I was saying to you before we got started, I kind of had a, um, a midlife career crisis when I was in my early 50s. Um, and I decided that there were so many other financial advisors who were reaching out to me for advice. I mean, you know, I, humbly, uh, I, I'd say that our practice that we have in Cincinnati is pretty good. And after so many had reached out for advice on how I do the things that I do, I decided that I would create a second company, and that's what Advisor Architect is. Advisor Architect is, I guess you could call it a coaching firm. I don't really like that term because I think we are more of an implementation firm, but we're all about helping advisors create systems to run their business independently of them. So it allows the advisor to have more freedom and to focus not on setting revenue goals, uh, but rather setting profit goals, which is something so many businesses forget to do. They forget that that's their primary objective. And so in creating that program about five years ago, it's now blossomed into so many other lines. So in addition to the core program that we have, which is a 12-month program, uh, it's also evolved into a mastermind group. It's involved into a um, subscription newsletter business. Um, we have about five or six different products that we um, offer. And what's really appealing when I was listening to your show and, and what your show is all about is we kind of subscribe to the same theory about trying to establish um, a stream of recurring revenue with the same clients or at the very least get paid a large amount up front and not just operating on a per meal or on an hourly basis. And one of the cool things about Advisor Architect is that that model is really transferable to any industry. So if you are an attorney or if you're a software developer, if you're a baker, if you're good at doing what you do, there are people that want to learn how you built your business the way you did it. And therein lies an information marketing business. And that's essentially what I set out to do with Advisor Architect. And it's, it's grown a lot faster than I thought it would, I think largely because we took a very a unique approach compared to our competition. But that is out there for people and it's so easy to do. And, and the best thing about it is you can do it no matter where you are. So when I decided to do this, I left um, Cincinnati where the office is, I moved to Nashville and um, we've been doing it from there ever since. Cool. So uh, what, what was your life bef like before when you were, um, did you, uh, I imagine at some point you build by the hour. I don't know if you, if you continue to do that or like, what, what was it like before you created these diversified income streams based yeah. on your existing expertise? Sure. No, actually the way that I, I built from the beginning was rather than do it hourly, I would quote every client an upfront fee. And I said, look, this is the work we're going to have to do this is what it's going to cost. I didn't like hourly because I actually thought it would be, I would be ethically challenged hourly. I didn't want to have to justify every minute by the same token. I wanted to do a very thorough job and, and not, you know, overcharge the client. So to me, 
there was a flat fee that I felt was adequate for the work that we did. And then on the investment side, um, very early on, and this was, this was unique in the, in the um, early 90s, most financial advisors operated on a commission basis when it came to investments. And, and I did not. I said, no, 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 I'll just charge a small percentage, three quarters of 1% of your portfolio per year. I'll break it into quarterly installments. So it'll be very small. And um, you pay me as you go. And as a result, I was able to continue to generate revenue off the same customer year in and year out. So I didn't have to go out and, and, and chase and find new clients um, you know, to pay the bills. I was able to build off of the existing client base. I just saw that as a model that while in the short run uh, might not pay as much, in the long run, 30 years later, I had a strong feeling it would be well worth it. And of course, mm. it has. Right. Yeah. And when I, when I went solo, I also did not bill by the hour. At first, I had already seen the writing on the wall where that yeah. was going to go. Yeah. Um, but I never, for a long time, and I don't, yeah, for a very long time, I did not come up with a recurring revenue model from it. Yeah. It was all, I, I just went custom projects, value pricing, which worked great. It's extremely profitable. And I agree with your earlier point about you know, r revenue to me is like a vanity metric. Like if your costs are higher than your revenue, then you're losing money. I don't care if you're making $10 million a year. Yeah. So profit's where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and, and your personal net worth is where it's at too, which a lot of people lose sight of that too. Oh, that's, uh, that's over my head. What do you, is that worth dr <laughs> drilling into? <laughs> well, it's funny, like financial advisors, um, we're kind of, as a, as a, as a, as a community, a lot of them are like the, you know, the old adage of the shoemaker's kid who wears no shoes. Um, they, they live very often an affluent lifestyle, but they themselves are not affluent. If, oh, if, okay. <laughs> you know, their net worth, their true net worth in terms of investment portfolio, et cetera, is not what it should be given what they do. It's almost like going to a dentist who has bad teeth. <laughs> and, and, and that's a real problem for a number of reasons, obviously. Sure. But so many small business owners you know, we talk about recurring revenue. One of the things you have to recognize is that the value of your business grows dramatically when you have recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am much more willing to pay a higher uh, dollar amount for a business where I know there's existing clients who are going to pay every single month. If it's all based on the new, I'm sorry, what you've created is a sales office. And if I'm going to buy you out and you leave, well, you're the reason we had the revenue in the first place. Yeah. So quite frankly, without you, it's not worth much. And that's something a lot of business owners fail to realize. And it's not just financial advice. I see in attorneys all the time. I never understand with attorneys. I work with a lot of estate planning attorneys. So they're doing wills and trusts, et cetera. And again, billing hourly or, or even billing by project, but there's no recurring revenue. And you'll ask them, say, listen, what's one of the biggest problems with your estate planning clients? And I said, well, we'll do a very elaborate trust for them. And then we don't hear from them until they die eight years later. And there was never any updating. So I said, well, why didn't you build in a model where you charge them an annual retainer and for that annual retainer, everything gets updated? They said, you could actually charge less going in, which they would like, but in the long run, charge more and have this recurring revenue stream. And it's almost like you're talking Greek because the response is always, well, that's just not the way we do it. Well, that's not a good reason, right? <laughs> right. So it really doesn't matter what the industry is. Right. Um, it's, it's just that we kind of get caught up in, you know, this is the way it's always been done. And we often don't even ask the consumer. I mean, I, for one, hate the idea that every time I call my lawyer, I get a bill. 
I would much rather pay him a much larger amount of money every year and know I can call him and email him whenever I want. I know, I know that makes no sense from a dollars and cents, but psychologically, I'm going to feel like I can get the help. What happens, though, is when I get billed hourly or by project, whatever, I skimp on things. I'm like, you know, I don't need to call him. Right. I'll research it myself, which is not good. You know, I shouldn't be. But if he had come to me and said, you know what, here's our new model. It's $1,000 a month. And you get unlimited access to me. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Some years you may use me more than you should. Other years you may not use me as much. But you'll never get another bill. It's just going to be that amount. Where do I sign up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think just too often we, we fail to realize that there are customers who want that type of a, of a system. Oh, yeah. And the, what I try to do to, to get people to, to believe this, that they could do it in their own business, because it's very... It can, it can take some serious imagination to figure out, well, how, how would I structure that and how would I not get killed by scope creep and so on and so forth. But if you flip it around and you say uh, something like a landscaper or, I mean, my doctor, I have like one of those concierge doctor things. Yeah, and I, unli- I have unlimited access to my doctor for... <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. But how I go once a year. I go to my yeah. checkup. I, I think in the entire... I don't know how long it's been, at least five years I've been doing it. I've had one extra appointment outside of my physical. Right. And it was worth every penny because I I was like, I need to talk to my doctor right now. Yeah. And you got him immediately. Hell, you could probably text him and get a response back right away. You go to see him. There's no waiting. No waiting. He's got me in his office for two hours chatting about life and how are things, how's your stress level, how's your sleep before in his office before we even go to like an examination room. So what's interesting here is this is a classic example of the, the service matching the, the, the target market that you're going at. So when a doctor obviously decides he's going to go concierge, he realizes, of course, that he's not going to be target marketing 20-year-olds who barely have health insurance. No, mm-hmm. he's, mm-hmm. Going to, he's going to be targeting um, usually people who are getting close to 50 because that's when our body starts to change. It's not perfect anymore. <laughs> um, who have the means and more importantly, don't have the time for traditional healthcare. So he knows that he can charge a premium for that because those types of people will pay it. And I think sometimes when other businesses are afraid to change their pricing model, it's because they, they're afraid to really build it around what is probably going to be their most um, profitable type of client, their, their, yeah. their target market. Um, they would be amazed what their best clients would be willing to pay, um, especially if it elevated things like service, time with them, Etc. I think that's, right. a, that's a great example of, of how that should be done. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and ex- you're exactly right. I'm 51 and I'm the youngest person I've ever, the youngest patient I've ever seen in that office. And in fact, I think yeah. I've only ever seen one other patient in the office. I've never seen a person in the waiting room other than maybe once. Yeah, it's funny. I, I had the same thing. I did it right around the same age. And um, it was, uh, it's the same thing. Yeah, I see everybody, they're like, you know, in their 70s. But it was kind of funny because he told me, uh, I was at a point where I was having some issues with blood sugar and stuff like that. And I mm-hmm. said, I need somebody who's literally going to coach me through this lifestyle change. And, you know, he said, you're the ideal age to start something like this. Mm-hmm. So yep. th- that's his model. It fits in fine. He gets paid um, a monthly amount, whether I, you know, see him or not. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad to have that like you, that I could just, yeah, you know, I could text them right now and I'd get a response back by the end of the day. You don't get that with normal healthcare. Right. And so now flip this around the other way and imagine that you are the provider because I've, I've, you know, this is what I do for a living. So I've asked him right. about it and his 
motivation for going in this model, which is very controversial, mm -hmm. yeah. is his his reasoning was that he when he was uh, call it a normal doctor, he was on a treadmill. He couldn't spend time with patients. Yeah. He didn't like being a doctor anymore. He was he had to just like churn and churn and burn tables like a waiter, you know. Yeah. And and he was he's like this stinks. I'm not doing a good job. And it was funny because that was my, that was the core, the, the strongest motivation for me when I went solo to give people a price instead of an hourly estimate and then end up blowing through it in six months and then them being angry uh, was that I, I wasn't able to reliably deliver customer satisfaction in an hourly model. So I was like, I cannot do this anymore. Right. And it's the same with him. He couldn't deliver customer satisfaction or patient satisfaction the way that he wanted to when it was this like hamster wheel of insurance billing, blah, 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 blah. I mean, essentially what we're saying here is you, you work with fewer clients, but you make more. And that's the perfect scenario. You charge, you, the other thing too, to understand that if you are willing to take the position as a higher cost provider, those people who are responsive to you, are actually less likely to leave you because of price. They're used mm -hmm. to paying the premium. So you go through a, a difficult economic period like right now, um, the more fluent customer client is, is less likely to see that as a problem. He's actually probably more likely to value you. It's mm -hmm. when you're constantly chasing the, the lower end that you then get put out for bids all the time. Right. So we need, to, we need to understand that part of it. It takes discipline and it's hard sometimes because you're essentially in some ways, turning some people away because they don't fit your model. And we have this scarcity mentality sometimes about where our next client is going to come from. But if you can get over that, I assure you, um, there's, a, there's a sector of the market out there who'd much rather work with you. Just like when someone's looking at a hotel room, I always laugh. We, you, know, you look on Airbnb or one of these things, and every once in a while, I stumble across something that's just too darn cheap. And I won't, I won't book it. I don't care what it is. I cannot yeah. believe that it's what it is. Yeah. Bed bugs. <laughs> I am more likely to pay more than less because I, I, I'm just not comfortable with that. Right. So if you're looking for, yeah, it, I get this all the time where I'll say, I'll explain my shtick or whatever. And people are like, oh, it's different here. Yeah. You know, it must be nice if my industry is different. My industry is yeah. different. My culture is different. My country is different. Uh, right. Whatever it is. And it's like, they're wrong. Like, do you have, are there famous people where you live? Are there famous or wealthy people? If there oh. are, <laughs> then, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. No, that's the biggest self-limiting belief. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for, for people who, who follow Dan Kennedy, I mean, he t talks about that a lot that people are constantly saying, well, my industry is different and your industry is not. Cause I can give you example of example of people that apply these principles quite well. It doesn't matter what industry that, that they're in. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, because they are different, they become more appealing. They start to serve that niche. So let, let's go back again to the concierge physician. Mm -hmm. um, before whoever had that idea, I mean, that probably was, was thought as, as heresy, you know, that, that you would do something like that. Mm -hmm. And and in yet it's it's in great demand. In fact, good luck moving cities and trying to get a concierge physician. They're booked. They're booked solid. Uh, when I moved from Cincinnati to here, I had to get put on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. So that just shell, tells you how successful that idea is. Why it was unique to be able to say to somebody, "How would you like to never have to wait in a waiting room ever again?" Yeah, right there. Like who that, wouldn't? Do, who, yeah, if you could afford that, if you who could afford it. 
exactly. So you have to get over, that's a self-limiting belief. I mean, there, uh, you know, again, I'm in financial services. There isn't a more regulated industry than ours that I know of. I mean, we get regulated for everything, all right? Mm -hmm. And yet we've been able to adopt a model of recurring revenue, of direct, of aggressive direct marketing. Um, there really isn't anything that uh, major marketers or even pricing that, um, that we couldn't do. Um, we have to, we maybe have to um, disclose how we're going to do it, uh, but it can be done. It's that mindset that says, oh, our industry is different, that limits people. And quite frankly, as a competitor for that, people with that mindset, I welcome them thinking that way <laughs> yeah. because I know that I can position myself as different. I mean, let's face it, in this day and age where it's so easy to commoditize anything, for you to have a service that's priced differently is a major strategic advantage to you. Mm-hmm. You just have to have the courage to do it. Right. It changes you from just one of many to the one and only, you know, and if you're the one and only, then the right kind of buyers, like if you've been strategic and and Mm -hmm. when you're being really strategic, that's like creating a litmus test for things that you're going to say no to. It's all about saying no. So like if you, if you aren't saying no, to customers, like prospects, I should say, if you aren't saying no to prospects, you're probably not doing something right. You know, you're probably leaving money on the table. It's a great point. I always tell financial advisors, you should only be offering your services to about half the people who come to your office. Yeah. And that, that gets to that. It gets Mm -hmm. to that issue of, of saying no. And it's not that you're being difficult. It's that you have an understanding about who you can best serve and you've made yourself available to that. If you're not going to take that approach, you will ultimately lose out to whatever internet alternative there is because yep. that's always going to be more readily available. That's always going to be more, uh, it'll be cheaper. It's a click a away. Big part, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, I also say too, a big part of it is we have to overcome any sense of neediness that we have. Um, even if you are needy, you never want to show it. Because as soon as you do, um, you become less, less advantageous to the potential customer. Again, using the doctor model, doctors don't come across as needy. They know there's another patient coming down the pike. So if you decide to leave that concierge for somebody else, they're not going to sweat it. Um, and I think that if you, well, I know that if you portray yourself as not being needy, uh, but being selective, you'll actually become more appealing. You'll find, you'll find customers actually trying to sell themselves to you to take you on because they know that you have limited capacity. Yeah. And my, my advice to people in their sales interview with a a prospect is to try to talk them out of working with you. Yeah. Why would you spend so much money on somebody like me when you could just do it yourself or hire someone off the internet or, Uh, uh, you know, bravo for that. Um, I always say you want to stress test that commitment. (laughs) That's a good Um, way to put it too. yeah, Yeah. Well, you see in our world, for example, so again, financial advisors, People hire us with the hope they're going to get huge returns on their money, but they're not going to get huge returns all the time. It just doesn't work that way. And so what you have to do is when you bring somebody on, I tell advisors, the first thing you should ask them is, what will you do if after year one, you're down 12%? Mm-hmm. You know, and I want, to hear, I want to hear them say nothing. <laughs> That's what I want to hear them say. Right. Um, you have to do that. Otherwise, you're just renting that client. <laughs> um, you want that commitment to be real. And, and so it, depending on what your line of work is, if it's a, a line of work like ours where I can't really control the future, you know, the best that I can do 
is is coach your nerves during what are usually bad but temporary times. Mm -hmm. And if you won't let me do that, I have no value to you. So I have to determine that very early on, which is why when someone comes to hire me, I always say, well, why are you, just kind of like what you said, why are you hiring me? Because if you're hiring me because you think I can give you 30% in the next 12 months, I cannot. I cannot do that. And I would rather tell you that now than bring you on and then have you leave miserable in six months and then badmouth me to all your friends. Yeah. And what does it show? It shows that you're not desperate. It shows that you're willing to tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they probably wouldn't, if you said, oh, yeah, 30% returns guaranteed, they, that wouldn't build well, wouldn't. trust. Well, yeah. Yeah. So what? But, here's a very specific yeah. question. And uh, I, ha- I was answering a question on a webinar, I think it was, where a, a, um, a wealth planner, I think they're called, it, you, they, uh, wealth management, wealth management office. It's basically like like everybody wants to everybody wants to come up with a, some sexy term. It's like entrepreneur versus business owner. <laughs> okay, yeah. And he had a long term client. Very, um, it was like thirty years they were working together, and he was at the point where he was working with the the, the original client's kids. Right. And he had a tough conversation coming up because his compensation was based on a percentage of the overall portfolio, like you described. Right. And over time, it became apparent to the fairly or unfairly, it became the perception of the client that this guy was making 10 times more money than before without doing any more work or maybe even less work. Yeah. And it started to feel to the client like a success tax. Mm-hmm. And they they had to have a conversation around like what's going to happen there. And I'm curious in your subscription model, the percentage right. that you named was so small. I wonder if you're right. able to avoid that. There's a couple of ways you can deal with it. So I chose to I adopt a philosophy that says I'm going to manage all your money. I'm not going to manage any. So as a result, I can charge a lower percentage than the average financial advisor can charge. Because the average financial advisor will charge that amount, whether you give them half of your money or all of it. So again, because I was making, I was being very specific about who I would work with, I could come in with a lower number. Mm-hmm. But it still works that way, though. Because let's face it, if a client is with me that long, they, their money should double at least twice. And you're right. The work is largely the same. That means the value that you provide cannot just be based on returns. If, if, if you're not creating some other type of perception that you are doing more for them, and I hate to say it, most of the value that we bring is psychological. It's in mind. Well, customer satisfaction is the ultimate product, and that's a feeling. People, people worry about their money. They worry they're going to outlive their money. Mm. And so regardless of returns, if, if we can counsel them in a way where they have that comfort level about what they're doing, mm-hmm. that is worth it's an immeasurable amount of money. Um, now, the other way that you counter that is as your clients grow in size, you lower their fee. Mm-hmm. You come back to them and you say, you know, we charged you X when you were worth this. Now that it's higher, we're going to actually lower it. Now, the total dollar amount might be more, but the percentage right. would go down. Right. Um, I do think it's important as advisors that you do tie your success to your clients. So that's why I like the percentage basis because if you, if you grow, I make more. If you decline, I make less. And more importantly, I have absolutely no incentive to recommend a change other than I think it's going to grow in value. Yeah, because you're going to pay you've got skin in the game. Value. Yeah. So it's important that that you tie it that way. It, it'll be interesting going forward. There's been a lot of fee pressure 
on advisors to charge less. Um, my, my recommendation to advisors is one, do more than what you do. So many, we, I was kind of laughing when you were talking about wealth management. So many people call themselves advisors when really all they're doing is they're stockbrokers or they're just handling investments. And there's really five or six key areas of financial advice that just like a doctor is going to look at everything. Imagine if you went to see a doctor and all he was ever going to do is check your blood pressure. Well, that's not a very holistic doctor. Yeah. And, and we see that a lot in our industry as well, is there's not a, a level of holistic advice that should be there. So if you're willing to give that, uh, you will probably find there's less fee pressure upon you because you're doing a lot more. In fact, you might be even saving them more in taxes than they're ever paying you in a fee. Mm. So the challenge is on the advisor or really any business owner to meet more of that client's needs. And that's going to justify being paid more. Mm, yeah, I'm glad you left it there because the you know it was a very that, my question was very specific yeah. to your industry. Nothing yeah. I can't think of anything in the software space that operates at that level. Probably not. Maybe a stretch if you're a conversion rate optimization person, and maybe, but um, but that's not really a developer. I'd call that a little bit more no, of a marketer. It's interesting, and I and I I don't know much about the software industry, but let let me give you a, an example that might transfer over. Take copywriters, for example. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very common practice amongst the top copywriters. If they're being hired to do a project, that they get a percentage of the revenue of that project success. Mm -hmm. They tie yeah, their yeah. success to it, which is highly lucrative for them. Right. Um, again, it's another example of thinking outside the box. You could be a copywriter and just get paid hourly, or you could say, okay, here's what I need. I need $5,000 and I get 10% of all sales. Completely different you know, approach. Is everyone going to take you up on it? No, of course not. But you could actually come in if you were, if you're really convinced that it was a good product, you could come in lower than the five grand and make it up on the back end quite easily. So it's just, it's just a matter of challenging the, the, you know, the, the typical way of doing it. And you're going to get a lot more value for your money. The other thing too is you're not going to feel bad about going back to them again and again and making changes. It's not going to cost them anything and you're going to be financially rewarded if you find room for improvement. So I always say, no matter what your business is in, if, if you can get a piece of the action of that in some way, you know, it's just like we see all these affiliate deals today. It's, it's a good thing to do. Um, all you have to do is, is challenge the conventional norm on how you get paid. And as long as you're not running into some legal restriction, right. why not? All they can say is no, but you should at least try it. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, you know, so wouldn't you love to get off that treadmill trying to find new clients all the time? Right. Yeah. And so the funny thing about aligning what you just described is aligning the financial incentives between you and your clients. Mm -hmm. And the if you do that, however you do that, however you figure out to align so that you are you have skin in the game, you're sharing the risk. You know, a lot of people like to say, oh, we partner with our clients, but we don't share any of the risk. Well, you're not really a partner. No, you're not. You're just a, a vendor. You're a you're just a pair of hands, a freelance freelance. Yeah. So what you just described, if you are going to share in the financial risk, you're automatically going to get more picky about who you work with. You're exactly. not going to just take on anybody and say like, oh, yeah, I can I can build a Rails app for 200 bucks an hour. And, you know, you just tell me when to stop. When you run out of money, I'll stop. And you don't care if the Rails app is going to be successful. But if right. you say, ah, give me five grand up front and I'll take 10% of I don't know, the first year's earnings, let's say, after it launches or something. But you're not going to say that to somebody that you think has a bad idea. No, no. And you only have so much time. So you're going to treat your time preciously and mm -hmm. you're going to give it for the right projects. But wow, you talk about a much more lucrative model. Right. 
Okay, so let's talk about something. We've been talking about services and coming up with re recurring ways to right. monetize those services. But let's think of something. What What are some examples from your world where something is much more packaged? It's not an open-ended recurring you know, yeah. forever and ever, amen, or it's not a contingent, not a contingency fee, but like a percentage of the revenue. Mm -hmm. What's something, is there anything that you offer, you see other advisors offer that's like a four hour engagement for $5,000, or it's a three day workshop, or it's some kind of packaged thing, you know, set up, so I'll set up your uh, accounts for your new business for $3,000. You know, from the financial advisor to the consumer, there isn't a whole lot of that. There should be. I mean, we do charge um, tuition to do workshops and things along those lines. We do have um, planning fees where, you know, we'll charge you their one-time fee and then an annual if you want it us to update it, you can do that as well. Um, I actually think, you know, if I was to do this all over again, I would build relationships with clients where I would manage their money, but I wouldn't bill on assets. I would just simply bill um, a flat dollar amount every, every year. And that way um, I'm not running to that problem that you described before of having a success tax. And I actually think that is going to be, you know, more of the future. Um, where I have been able to kind of go into that type of, you know, packaging um, in, in different streams of revenue um, was by showing other advisors how I do what I do. So whether it be a one-year coaching program with me, whether it be a pretty much self-study course on selling skills, or whether it be a, uh, a subscription newsletter, those have been things that I've been very easily able to uh, introduce into, into that business. Once you build a, a large enough list of people who have some interest in what you do, um, buyers will buy more. And one of the things that I found was that people that were willing to buy one program were willing to buy others. And so now, in addition to the core product, which is a rather expensive one-year, one-on-one program with me, um, we have a number of ancillary systems that they can buy, have some access to me, not as much. And in the most basic sense, $76 a month for a subscription newsletter that gives them the ability to send me questions via email. Um, those things are out there. And as like I was saying earlier, if you've got a successful business, there's people out there who want to learn how you did it. And, and they will pay for you to mentor them. Um, it's really just a matter of you packaging it and, and putting it together. And that's so easy to do today. You know, when I started Advisor Architect five years ago, I didn't even know things like Thinkific and Kajabi existed. I yeah. was literally paying programmers to build me out a website where people could access their data. And then someone told me, you know, for $99 a month, you can have all that. <laughs> and they'll do the billing too. I'm like, what are you out of your mind? What's that? So it's so easy to do today. And yeah. I would encourage people to do that. You know, it, have a course. Have, look, I don't care if it's $35 a month and you do nothing more than an open hour Zoom call or mm -hmm. anybody who's paying the $35 can come on and ask you questions. If you have, talk to the programmers, you have a certain expertise in a certain language um, and you've got more experience than others. Uh, trust me, there's a market for that. And yeah, I do the exact same thing. Yeah. And if the cost is low enough, you're going to do it with numbers, volume. Yeah, right. And you get, and if you have the right expertise, you'll get people to, to, uh, to pay more. So it's just a limitless opportunities out there. And, and it's funny, but this is the, 
this is the one good thing. This is the only good thing that I think has come out of the whole COVID experience has been a comfort level with online communication that wasn't universally there. It was there within certain sectors of the population, small. Now we got 80 year olds totally comfortable about being on a Zoom call. Yeah. That was non-existent six months ago. Yeah, it's like a 10 years leap forward. Right. So, you know, I like to say, I should say when we get out of this, but lately I've been getting cynical and saying if and when we get out of this, um, there is going to be a much higher comfort level with, with, with this level of way of doing business, which I think is going to really open up some huge opportunities for people. I, 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 I encourage people, don't dismiss the face-to-face if you can do it, but this idea of, of um, working virtually and, and having this type of a business model where you're, you're face-to-face but in the Zoom, that, that is here to stay and you should build off of that and don't let that limit you. I'm amazed over these last six months the number of these calls I have with people overseas, which never would have happened prior to COVID, mm. never. Yep. So let me. So I'm curious. I get a lot of objections from people who they they do their thing. You know, let's let's say it's they build websites. They build websites. They've been doing it for five, ten years. They're really good at it. They've got yeah. big clients. They know they're good, and they know a lot of other people who do the same thing they do, other people who build websites look up to them. Maybe they've written some technical books that sold reasonably well for that sort of a thing. How the the objection that I'll get when I say, you know, they're like, well, you know, 90% of my money comes from client work and you know, maybe 10% comes from the book and teaching my peers how to do what I do. Uh, And really they just see it as like a business card. The book is basically a 300 page business card to get more clients. So they have, they have at that moment in time, they have two different audiences, very different audiences. One does what they do, and then their clients are in just some completely other industry like financial services or some fintech. So so the objection I get is that people are afraid to start to change where that balance point is. Yeah. So that they're, they wanna intentionally grow the peer audience and they're afraid that that's going to jeopardize the other piece of their business. So how, how, what has been your experience in doing that? It's, it's a valid concern. And here's the problem. At some point, we have to decide, are we going to be business owners or entrepreneurs? And let me explain what I mean by that. If we go back to the book, most of us have read it, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Yes, great book. If you haven't read it, read it. Yeah, he says an entrepreneur works on his business, not in his business. So you can be the greatest baker in the world. If you're baking the bread, you're not an entrepreneur. Now, the day you teach somebody to bake the bread, you are. So the first thing that I would say to somebody is like that, and this is what I did with my practice, okay? I knew when I started Advisor Architect, it would take away from Money and Clarity, which is the planning firm. Mm-hmm. Well, Money and Clarity had always been built around systems, systems that anybody could run. Maybe I run them better, but that's okay. Anybody else can come in and do almost as good a job, enough job. So that's what I did. I brought somebody in who ultimately runs that operation. Now, the amount of money that I pay her is a fraction of what I make when I started and still with Advisor Architect. So I was willing to give something up over there to do it. But in truth, it runs itself. And the value of that business now is worth so much more because I'm not part of it. So what I would say to that person is, number one, you got to go where your passion is. My passion had gotten to the point where, don't get me wrong, I, I still love working with clients. But helping other financial advisors run better businesses actually gives me an adrenaline rush that was 
unknown to me. And I, and I greatly enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. So I decided at that point, that was where my passion was going to go. And whatever I had to pay somebody to, to run the systems that I had already created, I can more than make that up. And that's what I've done. Mm -hmm. If you try to wear both hats, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying you're probably not going to have the life that you want. And, and something is ultimately going to break. Again, I think striving for true entrepreneurship is a worthy goal. You know, too often we just call ourselves entrepreneurs because we're self-employed. Now, I'm sorry. Real entrepreneurs can go away for six months and they come back and they have even more money than when they, than when they <laughs> Right. Okay, no, they really do. And, and, and don't get me wrong. Most of us won't ever get to that stage, but it's aspirational and we can get a lot closer to that stage. So I would say to that person is, look, if you really just love programming, building websites, that's your passion, that's all you want to do, then fine, accept it for what it is. But if you love that other part more, great. You don't have to give up the other thing. You have to build it in a systematic way and you have to have other people run the systems. I mean, there's a reason why McDonald's doesn't allow the franchise owners in the restaurants. They don't want them messing with the system. That's funny. I didn't know that. They're not oh, allowed. Yeah. You know, the managers are trained. The owners have no, you know, the owners are like doctors, you know, they have no idea. In fact, there's a great movie on that um, called The Founder, which was all about McDonald's. And that was actually one of the key moments was when the franchisees were doing things differently than the way McDonald's wanted them to do it. And finally, they just said, we're locking you out of there. You're not coming in your own franchises. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're, you just make the money. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll make sure everybody follows the same formula. And, uh, so that's, that's what you have to do. And I think any other way, you're going to get back to this serving two masters thing. Mm -hmm. You're be partially successful. You're not going to be happy. Go where your passion is. And you don't have, but don't, you don't have to give up that other thing. I see so many owners of businesses sell an old business only because they don't think they have the time. And I said, look, you can have the time. Systematize it. Have somebody else run the systems. One day a month, you observe the system performance. It's not that hard. Again, the guy who owns McDonald's does it. Right. There's a hilarious joke that I have to tell. Uh, the factory of the future will be staffed by a, a man and a dog, and the dog is there to keep the man from touching the system. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, so I, my consulting business, I shut it down because mm -hmm. there was nothing to sell because I didn't yeah. have recurring revenue. Uh, I didn't have systems in place. I never trained someone, and I don't want to train anyone. I, I there was, that's just not my thing. Um, I've managed people in the past, not my favorite. Right. So uh, it would have been a huge undertaking. So I just spent about 18 months running both businesses and it was a lot of work. Just like you said, you know, you didn't, it was a, a lifestyle that I did not like. Yeah. Um, but it gave me that opportunity to ramp up the new income while the old income just sort of naturally atrophied. And it, it, it was a drag 18. I mean, it was actually fun, but it was busy and I don't really like to be busy, but, uh, well, you made a conscious decision. That's how you were going to do it. There's nothing wrong with that. I think with, with some people that takes courage to do what you just did. A lot of people wouldn't have that kind of courage. They would be like, you know, I've got this bird in the hand. I don't want to risk that. Uh, it's a golden goose in their mind. Um, but you know, it takes courage to say, you know what? I can make you know, money's the easiest reason. It really is. I was bored, just like you said. Yeah, the only thing you can't get back is time. You can get money back quite easily. Mm -hmm. So um, you just have to go that route. But you know, I, I strongly feel that the lack of understanding 
about systems and, and how they can run independently of the owner is what holds so many business owners back. They just see themselves as a center of that universe. No one can do it any better than them. And, and it, you know what? They're probably right, but no one has to do it as well as they do it. Right. They just have to do it maybe 80% as well as they do it. Mm-hmm. And then you can make up, if, if, it's, if it's money you want, or t- time, obviously you'll get that because it'll run on its own. But if it's money, well, then you find other things that you have more passion about to make up for a lost client that you may have, or the fact that you maybe have to bring on a little more staff to run that. I mean, I was able to do it by just hiring one person. So it really wasn't to me a major thing. Mm-hmm. I would have done it anyway, because at 57, I felt that I needed some free time. So to me, just for that was a reason to do it. But then once I had the free time, I thought, okay, now what am I going to do? Well, that's when I the other business was able to fill that void. Yes, that would have been a more sane approach for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, planning it out is always worse. But but no, you go where your passion is. And, you know, it, 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 look, I just say, as long as you're acting consciously, yeah, fine. Right. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm going to have a job that I don't like, I would just go work for someone else. It's way easier. Exactly. Right. Exactly. All right, cool. Well, this has been super fun. Where can people go to find out more about all of your... Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd suggest is I do have a podcast, the Profitable Advisor podcast, and uh, it's really about more than a lot more than just uh, being a financial advisor. So it's really about business. So if you're a podcast listener, which obviously people listen are, you can look for that. Um, another thing you might want to do is just go to my website, dancapril.com. And if you go there, you can subscribe to my almost daily email where I provide you with all kinds of business advice. Uh, you'll also can get a, um, a free um, copy of, uh, of our newsletter. So you can, you can check that out as well. So dancapril.com or go to the Profitable Advisor podcast. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me, Dan. This has been super educational. I think people are going to really value it. It's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Best to you. Thanks. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and you've been listening to Ditching Hourly. See you next time. Hey, Jonathan again. The next time someone asks you for your hourly rate, I want you to stop what you're doing and go over to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free value pricing email course. That URL again is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.